this book on Hegel that we've been um, talking about, uh, Todd McGowan's book, Emancipation After Hegel, basically shows you've got to be a Christian to be a communist. So, mm. sorry. Do you, do, you ever, <laughs> do you ever read the Zizek thing on St. Paul? I never read the, like the, the actual, not just the bits of references to it, but the actual book that he wrote on that. I never the, the best The best thing that I saw on this was a tweet where somebody was like, yeah, basically Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens made being an atheist so uncool <laughs> that all the Marxists have now become religious. And they they're citing St. Paul and Hegel and Zizek, but it's really it's just they don't want to be a logic bro. Yeah. No, but the point that, that, the point that Zizek makes, I think, which um he gets from Hegel, is that um God himself is do is inconsistent and divided. And I never, you know, I never really understood its significance until I read the McGowan book, because the point being that um, it's one thing to say God doesn't exist, because at the same time, you still kind of posit the absence of some um, all powerful, pervasive, mysterious entity whose will can't be known. You just deny that it exists um, in this particular kind of supernatural context, whereas if you say that um if you don't say that God, you know, if you say God doesn't exist, not only does God not exist, but God is also inconsistent and divided and confused within himself, um, which according to Zizek is the kind of logic of Christianity, then it's a much more radical subversion of the premise of religion than simply saying that God doesn't exist, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of enlightenment shtick. And because, it only really it, became it, clear to me. With McGowan. Well, it, it's a bit like the, the core that would be like, not only do, not only should like, you know, the capitalists not rule, uh, but it's that they're not they're they're not fit to rule. I guess you know. Yes. I guess that's yes. The, the core exactly. Rule. Yeah. Exactly. Not only should they not, but also they're incapable of realizing the benefits of capitalism itself. In fact. Yeah. 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 Uh, should we go? Yeah. Let's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> actually turn to the material. Hey there, dear patrons. This is what we're calling an after party. We're going to have a little discussion amongst ourselves, myself, Alex, George, and Phil. Uh, That's not four of us. I'm Alex. Anyway, uh, about what we've just discussed with Krithika. Uh, The book's really interesting and uh, enlightened me personally as to the way the Saudis have operated around the world. And, and especially this notion that it was, you know, reached its kind of peak in the pre-9-11 period, and then they had to kind of hunker down. Uh, I mention that because uh, we're recording this on the 14th of May, and yesterday it was reported uh, that the U.S. had uh, inadvertently released uh, the main Saudi contact for uh, the 9-11 bombers. And I'm just going to read a quote here from a, a spokesman for the 9-11 families. This shows that there is a complete government cover-up of the Saudi involvement. It demonstrates that there was a hierarchy of command that's coming from the Saudi embassy to the Ministry of Islamic Affairs in Los Angeles to the hijackers. Um, So that obviously sounds quite damning. Um, I haven't read uh, the report or what's come out about it, but um, it is quite striking and does kind of throw you back to to those days in in kind of the early 2000s and, and the beginning of the war on terror and how insane the U.S. relations with Saudi were and continue to be. Yeah. Uh, one, I mean, the thing that strikes me the most about it, like you say, it kind of brings back all of that stuff. 
And I mean, to be clear, I mean, I'm sure the, you know, I'm sure the high, the terror attacks, um, the Al Qaeda terror attacks weren't ordered from um, the upper echelons of the Saudi regime, um, but that the Al Qaeda itself, as an as part of the um, outgrowth of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, was so deeply intertwined with the U.S. state, so deeply intertwined with. Saudi intelligence and security services and all of the weird covert transnational structures that they had set up to funnel mujahideen and jihadists to their favored their favored battle sites of the cold war and post cold war era as Krithika mentioned like in bosnia kosovo and chechnya as well which we didn't talk about but that it's unsurprising that there were handlers effectively it seems as a result of this um as a result of this information that's just been released accidentally by the FBI that the hijackers had Saudi intelligence handlers. It's so it's one thing that um it's a point in fact that I made recently elsewhere, but the the story of the um the story of the of this alliance between the US and um and Islamism and jihadism in the Cold War and post-Cold War period it's so convoluted, it's so paradoxical, it's so strange, and it involves so many uh, flips and um, you know, kind of striking paradoxes and reversals that it would only really, it requires a kind of Chestertonian fable to do it justice. So I'm thinking of J.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, which is a this wonderful fable of anarchist terrorism in the late 19th century. Uh, where in fact it turns out, and I'm not giving anything away, but Everyone's in the <laughs> story, yeah, essentially everyone who's an anarchist terrorist in the novel turns out to be a secret agent who's been sent to penetrate the anarchist secret cell. But there are no, there's no anarchist secret cell to penetrate because everyone is actually working for the state. And mm. it's a similar thing with the, it's a similar thing with Al Qaeda and the Mujahideen, and I think cosmopolitan jihadism in general. It's maybe so, with uh, leftist podcasts as well. It's so interpenetrated. It's so interpenetrated with the. This is a serious point, though. It's so interpenetrated with the U.S. state that it's impossible to tell where uh, the U.S. state begins or ends, rather, and where some kind of authentic, you know, Muslim jihadi uh, uprising, anti-imperial insurrection begins. You know, it's impossible to tell between the two because and And, and, and it applies elsewhere as well, right? I mean, you know the. the Israelis being responsible for for getting Hamas off the ground as well as a counter uh, to the kind of secular yeah, liberation sure. movement. I mean, I think like the, the I think that because at the core of the the relationship with the cosmopolitan jihad is the Saudi, so the U.S. Saudi axis, which is much stronger uh, than the connection between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and I think, in to some extent, you know, Hamas is kind of a byproduct of the of the U.S. Saudi stimulus to cosmopolitan jihadism. So, I mean, just to illustrate, because what you know, so you have the mujahideen, the support for the anti-Soviet mujahideen in Afghanistan in the eighties, which is protracted and extended into support for mujahideen in the civil war in Bosnia, where they become effectively the armed wing of the humanitarian liberal opinion of the day. Support for uh, jihadi support for the war in Chechnya, which is a good way to tangle with the Russians supporting ethnic secessionism in the Russian periphery, to support then for Islamist support for Kosovo's um, Albanian separatism in 1999, 
And then suddenly it all goes the other way with the terror attacks of 2001. Mm. And the alliance seems to be broken. And then, you know, you kind of dial forward, uh, dial forward a couple of decades and we're into the Syrian civil war and yeah. suddenly the alliance is reformed. They're supporting it... Saudi and Qatari backed militias. The mm. US and the CIA are providing special forces and pumping literally millions and millions of dollars worth of armaments to Islamist militias and Al-Qaeda affiliated militias in Syria. And it's just, uh, it's so bizarre and convoluted, like I say, that you can't really account for it in terms that are geopolitical or would fit into some uh, some kind of pragmatic, sensible calculus of rational geopolitical calculation or power politics. It could only be done justice, like I say, by a kind of Chestertonian fable. And I guess it's, one and of the... Sorry, well, no, I mean, it's funny just casting your mind back to the kind of 2000, to the early 2000s. I mean, right, you know, I wasn't an adult at the time of the 9-11 attacks. Um, I, you know, and at the time, I think there was obviously the, the whole kind of, uh, the kind of polarization, at least from kind of a left-wing point of view, was like, oh, the U.S., state and kind of Muslim countries and the U.S. is going to war with, you know, some backward, one of the poorest countries in the world, how, how outrageous and whatever. But I think, you, I, at least myself, I wasn't properly attuned to how interlinked the U.S. state, the U.S. military establishment, the security state was with uh, jihadism, you know. and It's still one of the most, I mean, it's still one of the most astonishing stories of modern times, because, you know, essentially what it is, right, with uh, Osama bin Laden, it's a, US, a CIA agent goes rogue yeah. and, go you know, attacks his handlers. If you'd given that story to a, if you'd given that story to a Hollywood producer, they would have um, kicked it back for being too cliched. And it yeah. turned out to be reality. You know, a CIA agent goes rogue and he has to be hunted down by the forces of the U.S. state. And, and, and to, and it's to make completely a call, ridiculous. And to make a callback to, to uh, episode two episodes ago or whatever. No, it was a little bit longer than that. But, uh, you know, this is a kind of tail end of anti-communism still as well. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan under the, the guise of anti-communism and its continuation through this period as well. It's one of the most this important is... stories, I think, to draw out from the from the discussion with Krithika, but also more generally, um, as we had a few episodes back in our discussion with Vincent and the, the anti-communist massacres in the 60s in Indonesia, um, that Islamism has played a vital role in suppressing the forces of uh, secularism, of well, of secular modernist uh, nationalist and communist emancipation in the 20th century and that we live in the aftermath of that and with the overhang of that which is the widespread influence of salafist jihad, of salafist islamism as krithika said towards the end of her of her of the chat with her is the fact that it's become entrenched around the world yeah i guess this was kind of one of my my questions linking this particularly to the the episode with vincent whether a lot of this story is <clears throat> is essentially i guess the echoes or the hangover of that cold war that the, the anti-communism gave it the impetus gave it the momentum the first push and then this is essentially some of the forms that that kind of anti um i guess that anti-communism took um or just or, or, or these networks and these kind of you know mazes and and um labyrinths that that the money goes through from here to there but i mean that that was my question is essentially whether this is I guess continuous with that 
with that story of anti-communism um, well, I mean, and that's the real kind of political origin I mean, if you look at kind of the anti-communism and the way that it installs conservative nationalists around the globe, uh, I think that tendency is already there. And it becomes worse after the end of the Cold War when there's the kind of because you don't have the kind of set piece of two competing secular ideologies uh, that you have a kind of return and, and, you know, in in an uncertain and an unsafe world, uh, various in various different countries, especially, you know, kind of outside of the Western bubble, countries looking to uh, religious tradition, ethnic traditionalism, whatever it might be, for a basis to create... But it's very specific in... Yeah. In the Muslim world, it is conservative Islam is a bulwark of the recreation of um, an identity that is conservative, um, allied with the US in various ways, and also opposed to the secular ideals of emancipation associated with the left, associated with um, anti-imperial nationalism, associated with modernization, associated with communism and with socialism. Um, The other thing, though, I think I would add, though, is also this is kind of an anecdote or well, not an anecdote, but an insight from growing up in the Middle East is how American the Gulf states are. And it struck me listening to. So I didn't grow up in Saudi Arabia. I grew up in Oman, which is just to it borders with Yemen and is just on the edge of the Arabian Peninsula to um, on the southeast corner of Saudi Arabia. Um, But one thing that she said in Saudi is noting when she visits Saudi, how Americanized it seems with all the McDonald's and all the um, American, you know, the brands and so on. And it's very similar uh, throughout, you know, throughout the Gulf in the Emirates, in Oman, um, in Qatar, Kuwait and Bahrain. It's intensely Americanized. And so it struck me, this only came to me obviously after having left the region, but it struck me how much in a way the, deeply religious and conservative aspect of those societies it's like a an american evangelical utopia right, yeah except yeah. that it's muslim so you know it's very american in the sense like you have these decentralized car-based cities it's all based around obviously around oil you know like texas it has a true it's so many american brands um american chains that you don't get even in western europe or are less prominent in western europe it's uh, so the Saudi channels, the satellite TV channels, which we used to get when I was growing up in um, when I was there in Oman, uh, are all American TV shows, which in which the sex scenes have been cut out, so they skip them over. So it's this astonishing. The culture is so Americanized, except given a kind of Muslim twist, and it's it's very it's so remarkable yeah, i mean it has com- to be experienced to be believed no in the comparison to mm-hmm. evangelical uh, is correct because you know the, there's a whole uh, worship of wealth and you know american evangelicals tend to be relatively relatively better off and not to say that they're all uh, exceptionally well off but um yeah i mean it, yeah it, but it's built around the cult of kind of um, worldly success it yeah. vindicates the religion and there's I an think, element of that yeah. too so it's tremendously Americanized, and I suppose that's what I want to put across. And I, that's the that's the undergirds the geopolitical security alliance between Islamism and U.S. imperial interests. So culturally, there's the the, the figure of the the shopping mall in both in both contexts. I guess the yeah. air conditioned yeah. place of consumption. Um, my experience of of uh, Dubai just being being in the airport a number of times. Um, and, 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 and in Brazil, and for that matter, as well. 
I mean, you know, the you only the, kind of especially not so much maybe in in kind of the center of big cities, but you know, yeah, in, but Brazil the, is America. Brazil is in America. My point, it's, you know, this well, is not but what no, I'm but to but, 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 but no, but what I'm trying it's to cut a little bit of an aside. No, 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 I, that there is some authentic, deep Islamic, you know, ancient heritage and tradition, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, which absolutely. is being called it's, upon. Um, whereas, you know, Brazil is the new world, whereas Arabia is genuinely mm. very much the old world. But modern Arabia is just, a, you know, it's like a, well, it's but, an American. No, well but hang on, hang on. But, but there's a point here. There's a point here at which Krithika rightly makes out. The Saudi state is only 70, maybe 90 years old now, right? So it's not as if it's an old society yeah. where there's this continuous exactly. national identity over 300 years no, or no, something. Sure. So All I'm saying is, though, from the outside, it's often portrayed still, you know, continuously in the West. It's portrayed, Islam is portrayed as something which is has such these deep and ancient roots you know it's understood kind of in similar kind of similar depth to historical christianity there's the kind of ancient clash between islam and europe with the crusades and so on and all of that i think is phony it's a completely phony depth <laughs> it's it's like thomas and friedman kind of it's kind of thomas yeah, friedman yeah, bullshit mirage. right the lexus and the olive tree and all that yeah it's a mirage because any familiarity with the modern character of those of those societies, like I say, the kind of Californian style sprawling cities, the oil wealth, the prominence of religion in public life, which an, e an ev Christian evangelical in the States could only dream of. Um, all of that is so intensely American. It can't be anything else but American, except that it's, you know, everyone, everyone is Arabic and, yeah. uh, and it's Islam rather than Christianity. I think India provides a good point of comparison here though because it's a similarly you know recent state which draws on this kind of mythical idea of of, of unity and in, in that case and diversity um but re religion obviously being a part of that but doesn't have that same i guess that same religiosity projected um projected externally i yeah i mean I'm, i think it's it's i haven't been to saudi arabia i don't know if this if the discussion made me um, want to go so, more sorry, George. Not, did you, did you say in, India doesn't project its religiosity? I mean, not in the same way as that. As um, not as it doesn't have a yeah, not as an international. It doesn't have an outreach project. program. Yeah, yeah. In, in the way that the Kritika described, um, in describes in her book. But yeah, I, I mean, it's because yeah, yeah. You have obviously Hindu nationalism now, and you know, carrying out kind of pogroms. Yeah, it's and, not. It's not evangelical there. No. There's no call and um, there's no, though there is the kind no of the answer. fetishization, there's no, there's the fetishization of some ancient depth, indigenous depth to the religion. But, you know, nonetheless, there is no projection outwards the way that there is with Saudi, which was the whole point of Krithika's book. But anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one maybe thing that I wanted to take, uh, take away or tease out from, from the discussion, I think, uh, because I think there's an element to which the Saudis are treated, you know, kind of exoticized. And it's like, uh, you know, they're, it's, they're just motivated by this religious project. And it just so happens that they're sitting on a bunch of oil, mm. which has allowed them to carry this through. But I mean, you know, that, that isn't exactly the case. As, you know, she says in the book, it, there's always been an uneasy relationship between, or, you know, not an uneasy relationship, maybe, but one that has had to be a relationship that's had to be managed between the royal family on the one hand and uh, and, and, and the Wahhabi uh, preachers and scholars and so on, the kind of religious establishment. Uh, yeah. And I think maybe at some it's point... A, it's, a, it's religious justification, religious legitimacy for a state. There's, I mean, I think that's, that is a really good point 
that you're making. Sorry, I kind of interrupt you. To tell you <laughs> no, what, you what go you're on. Making. Um, but no, that it's 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 political. It's it, you know there's a political dimension to it. So you're right. The kind of the the kind of stereotype. It's all about religion and 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 oil. Is is yeah. Is right. It's right to 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 reject that if if anybody does hold that that sort of stereotyped uh, naive view. So I think uh, maybe we can leave this there. This has just been a short little uh, after-party kind of post-interview discussion uh, to tease out some extra things that we maybe didn't get to say during the interview. Um, but we should be back with something more on this because uh, I definitely think we should we should do more on, on kind of what happened to secularism because it's maybe not often yeah. discussed yeah. enough, uh, but especially outside of uh, Europe and, you know, arguably outside of North America as well. Um, it's a real factor uh, and you know I mean living in Brazil having to f- uh, face the rise of evangelism is it's pretty it's pretty striking it's pretty striking and, and depressing development uh, you know the secularization thesis and the kind of complacent view that everything's just going to get more secular and religion will just disappear has uh, proven not to be true since the end of the Cold War conflict all right that's it for now catch you later bye bye There's a whole thing about the, the the there's one model of religious proselytism that's basically the more demanding it is the better people need rules they want yeah. protection against yeah. anime. I mean, you kind I of mean, I can kind of buy that. I mean, at least you know I so I rewatched the young pope. We're all speaking from experience here, so. <laughs> Church of England is 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 not this model. <laughs> I meant communism, so, George. Not the it's not very demanding. All you have to do is tweet the right things and not be too energy. You can be a a communist. Actually, surprisingly easy. Oh, dear. All right, that was a good joke for a change. (laughs) Fucking hell.